It was a defining moment in the Revolutionary War, one of those moments that just really united all the men who were fighting George Washington's army. It was July the 9th, 1776, just five days after the Declaration of Independence had been finished. And Washington wanted his men to hear what this document had to say. Men, this is what we're fighting for. So there on Manhattan Island, there in the heart of what we know as New York City today, Washington gathered his men around a statue, a 15-foot high, two-ton statue made out of solid lead. It was a statue of King George III sitting on his horse. This was their king. So as the men stood there staring at the statue, they listened to the 27 grievances listed in the Declaration of Independence. Grievances against the British crown. Grievances explaining why this king, King George III, was no longer fit to rule. He's nothing but a tyrant. And the Declaration of Independence declared, we will not live under this tyranny anymore. And the men in Washington's army agreed. Because when they finished reading that document, those men grabbed a bunch of ropes, put it around the statue, and pulled it to the ground and just smashed it to pieces. Now, it's what they did next that I find most interesting. See, Washington and his men knew it's not enough to declare your independence in this epic way by just tearing things down. No, if we want to really have freedom, we've got to move forward and create something new, something that's genuinely going to protect and preserve these new freedoms. So, after smashing the statue, they carefully gathered up all the fragments, every one of the broken pieces of that statue, put it on, uh, loaded it up on a series of wagons, sent those wagons down to the dock there in the East River, where they loaded all of that lead onto a ship and sent the ship off to a foundry in Litchfield, Connecticut. And it was there in Litchfield that the statue of King George III was melted down and transformed into 42,088 musket balls. Musket balls that Washington's men used to fight for their freedom. Now, what I love about this story is the wisdom, the practical wisdom of the men fighting in this army. They weren't just rebelling, they were rebuilding. They weren't just pulling things down, they were creating something new. They took a 15-foot, two-ton statue, it was just standing there not doing anybody any good, and they transformed it into something they could actually use. And the fact that somebody actually took the time to count how many musket balls came out of that pile of lead, 42,088, showed they cared about the details. Everything from that broken statue's got to be used. It's got to count if we're going to have a chance to create a new nation conceived in liberty. Now, that's exactly what I love about the book of Proverbs. Listen, this is more than just wisdom from God. This is practical wisdom for the Lord. The kind of wisdom that shows you how to live well in the everyday stuff of life. You know, when you're having to fix flat tires and wash dirty dishes and pull weeds from the garden. Here's the kind of wisdom that shows you how to take what is broken and fix it so you can live in a better way. Even in the mundane stuff like when you're having a conflict with your friend. I want to show you what I mean. Take a look at this Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 14. A loud and cheerful greeting. Hey, it's, it's wonderful to be cheerful, but not early in the morning. <laughs> a loud and cheerful greeting early in the morning is going to come across as a curse. You don't read about this kind of stuff in the Ten Commandments, and you're not going to read about this kind of stuff in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but you will read about this kind of stuff in the book of Proverbs. God talks about, all the time, talks about this kind of stuff in this book. See, here's God telling us it's the little things that can make or break a relationship. You need to pay attention to those little things that irritate your friends and rub them the, the wrong way because it's those little things that will have long-term consequences. 
Think about it. Have you ever had this experience? I mean, as you were growing up, did you have to share a a bedroom with one of your siblings and the two of you are just wired differently? You're a night owl, they were a morning person, they'd rise up before the sun even came up and you, man, your brain doesn't even start to wake up until about 10 in the morning. Or how about a college dorm? You know, you're out late Friday night, you went to a party, so you're hoping to sleep in the next day. I mean, all week long, you've been having to go to these early morning classes, so Saturday morning, this is your one chance to catch up on some sleep. Man, it'd be great if I could just sleep till noon the next day. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But you had this roommate. Every morning, they wake up at 6. They don't even need an alarm clock. And when they wake up, instantly they're bright and cheery, and they're singing at the top of their lungs, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Do you remember how annoying that was? He's feeling blessed, but you're feeling cursed. What's convenient for him is sure not convenient for you. Now, my point is this. If you want to have any kind of a good friendship or any kind of a good relationship, it's going to be built on a thousand little moments like this. Moments where we've got to learn to be thoughtful of others. I want my eggs over easy, but she prefers them scrambled. Uh, You love to crack your knuckles. In fact, you do it so often, you don't even realize when you're doing it. But hearing those knuckles crack, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It drives her crazy. Or I love to have the remote in my hand. So when commercials come on, I can flip the channel. Let's catch the score of that game. Or let's see if there's any breaking news in CNN. And eventually, I will get back to the show. But all that flipping back and forth, and my wife literally gets dizzy. See, if Martha had her way, we'd just leave the TV on the Hallmark Channel all day long. (laughs) I like Hallmark, but not that much. Now, do you see what's being taught here? I want to do something good for my friend, but if I don't do it at the right time and in the right way, where it's really going to be a benefit to them, then what I intended to be a blessing can end up being a curse. Now, the book of Proverbs is filled with hundreds of sayings like this, just tiny pieces of wisdom that would make a huge difference in our everyday life. Many years ago, when I was young and foolish and filled with a lot of pride, I'd get into these little debates with my wife. Now, no anger. It was just kind of a friendly back and forth where we each had a different point of view and we'd we'd kind of test each other. Well, one night after a Wednesday night Bible study there in Bridgeport, Illinois, that's where I was preaching at the time, Martha and I got into one of these debates. Martha was claiming that women are tougher than men. And I thought to myself, no way. Well, her compelling piece of evidence was giving birth to a child. David, do you have any idea? at the level of pain that I went through to bring our children into this world. I mean, what was it, 20 hours of labor with TJ? David, I know you. You're not good with pain, which is true. Slightest bit of a headache. Man, I'm popping all those extra strength, et cetera, into my mouth. So David, if you had to go through the level of pain that I did to bring our children into the world, you wouldn't have done it. There wouldn't be any kids in the world today. Well, at the time, I didn't know how to answer. I didn't know how to respond until a couple of years later, I came across a study that said that the pain that a man goes through when he's having kidney stones is comparable to the pain that a woman goes through in giving birth to a child. Well, I've had kidney stones several times in the past. It's awful. I would not wish that on anybody. So at last, I honestly thought, I know where you have been. Martha wasn't having it. She came back and said, well, who did the study? You know, this study that says having kidney stones is similar to to giving birth. I bet it was a man, wasn't it? Somebody who's never given birth before. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, that kind of went in one ear and out the other, and I didn't give a lot of credence to that. But it was their second remark that kind of put me 
in my place. She said, David, there's a big difference between choosing the pain versus having no choice and the pain is forced upon you. Meaning, women are tougher than men because they choose to go through the, birth of, the pain of childbirth, but no man would ever choose to have a kidney stone. I mean, David, think about it. Have you ever heard any man say, wow, that was so rewarding. I hope God blesses me with another kidney stone. And no man in his right mind would say anything like that, okay? But how many times have you heard mothers say, yeah, the delivery was rough, the pain was excruciating, but it has been so rewarding to have this child. I hope God blesses me with another pregnancy. When she finished making her case, I knew in my heart she was right. See, in my pride, I thought I had it all figured out, but the truth was I had no clue. And that's not the first time or the last time that my pride has deceived me. You know, over the years, I'd had these conversations with my brother-in-law, John Fuller. He died a couple years ago, unexpectedly. It's just uh, devastating. I miss him a lot. And John, being a black man, he would from time to time sit down with me and try to help me understand this issue of race. And I would do my best to listen to him because I love John, I, I just respect that man enormously. So I do my best to comprehend, and several times in the course of those conversations, I say, okay, John, I think I get it. And he was always polite about this, but he'd just sit there and shake his head and say, no, David, you don't, and you never will. Listen, David, it'll never be the same for you as it was for me. And he's right. Being a white man in a white man's world, I have enjoyed a sense of privilege that goes way beyond what I will ever be able to fully appreciate. I know we've all been discriminated against, but that's not the same thing as experiencing racism. It's not even close. You see, in my pride, I thought I knew what he had been through, but the truth was I didn't, and I still over the years, I've performed many funerals, and I've lost grandparents and uncles and aunts on several occasions. I've had some really close friends just die unexpectedly. I mean, die way before they should have. And every time that happens, it's shocking, it's devastating. But though I've been through those kind of experiences, that doesn't mean that I'll still be able to understand the grief that some of you have had to deal with. So for me to come to you and say, hey, I know where you've been, that'd be nothing but a lie. Because the truth is, I have no clue the suffering, the pain that you've had to go through and that you still deal with on a frequent basis. Do you see these different examples, how our pride can deceive us? You know, in the closing days of World War II, when the American GIs were marching through Poland and Germany and trying to bring this awful war to an end, here they were through Poland and Germany starting to set all the people free that for years have been locked up in these concentration camps. But when the American soldiers came upon this and they saw these people, the emaciated bodies of these men, women, and children, they were shocked and horrified. So immediately, because of their compassion, they pulled out their own rations and they started feeding them. It was the worst thing they could have done because those emaciated bodies were not yet ready for solid food. And so hundreds, hundreds of these people who had finally survived the Holocaust, they ended up dying. And what killed them? The compassion of the American soldier. It's something. And it wasn't until the army doctors caught up with the, approaching, or the advancing troops that they were able to inform the American GI, hey, if we really want to nurse these starving people to help, we have to begin with a, a liquid nutrition before we can give them anything solid. See, in our pride, we rush in to help. And even though we mean well, we end up doing more harm than good because compassion without wisdom can end up being a curse. So that's why I want us to look at this proverb today. 
Because in one way or another, we are all affected by this issue of pride. And if we don't get a handle on this, it's not just going to harm us. It's going to end up harming the people around us too. So take a look at this. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. This word pride literally means high. High in the sense where you're trying to elevate yourself, put yourself on top, be the top dog, where now you can call all the shots. It's the very attitude that we see in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Hey, let's build a tower that's bigger than anything we've ever seen before. Something that's going to reach clear up to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. We want the spotlight on us. See, we're talking about an arrogance here. The arrogance of the criminal says, I'll never get caught. Or the arrogance of the teacher who one day is challenged by one of her students and it kind of ruffles her feathers. And, but teacher, couldn't it be this way too? And the teacher's thinking to herself, who are you to instruct me? You who are so young and so naive, you don't have near the experience that I do. You think you can teach me something? No way! See, what's so deadly and dangerous about this issue of pride is it's subtle. Pride is like bad breath. Everybody else knows you have it before you do. So, lest you think you have no problem with pride, let me ask you a couple of questions. When was the last time somebody in your family or somebody at your place of work heard you say, I was wrong, you were right? Or when's the last time they heard, him say, they heard you say, you know, I should have listened to you. Now that I think about it, I really like your idea better. Do you have the humility to say that? And when you say it, really mean what you say? You know, you've been a boss of the company for years, and, and, and the company's really doing good. You've really made a difference. But one day, one of these young pups, one of these new employees comes along, and he's seen something that you haven't noticed yet. And that in itself is kind of humbling. And he's got this great idea about how to fix things and turn things around and really make things better for the company. Do you have the courage to sit there and listen to him? Even though he's a little overeager in the proposal he makes, kind of cocky in his attitude. But do you have the grace to sit there and listen and say, you know what? You might be on to something. We should probably give that a try. Or say you're hanging a picture one day and, and a, a friend of yours happens to be there. And though you never asked for their advice, they share it anyway. Hey, I think you got the nail up too high. You should put it down here. Now, they're not making any comment about you not making any kind of comment on you and your decorating expertise. They're just talking about the picture. But you tend to take it personally. You feel like you're being attacked. Hey, don't tell me how to hang a picture. I know what I'm doing. I know where to put that nail. Do you get defensive when other people offer a suggestion? Then maybe you have that bad breath that comes out of the soul, what the Bible here calls pride. How do we get rid of that bad breath? How do we battle pride? I want to make two suggestions. Number one, learn to gladly accept those humbling moments that God will bring into your life. And he will bring them. <laughs> he will humble you from time to time. But don't resent that. No, learn to see those moments as a gift from the Lord. You've heard me talk about this many times before. One of the greatest joys of my life is having grandkids. I mean, words cannot begin to describe how just awesome this is. And part of what makes it so special is they want to spend time with you. I mean, at least to this point, they, they still want to hang around with us. And they're all the time seeking your wisdom and advice and knowing that Papa is a, a preacher. Hey, you know all about the Bible, Papa. What do you think about this? 
And there's days when that kind of goes to your head and you say, man, I, I really am something special in their eyes. I, I'm like the Apostle Paul to them. <laughs> but then they come over to spend the night at your house. And this has happened many times in the past. And the next morning, Caleb and Abby will come down to the breakfast table, kind of groggy and, and tired. And I say, hey, what's wrong? And they said, Papa, we couldn't sleep last night. Well, what's wrong? They said, well, Papa, you snore like a pig. <laughs> All of a sudden, I've gone from being the next best thing to the Apostle Paul to this old snoring hog. You talk about being put in your place. You know the best way to respond to that? Just laugh. They laugh about it. You laugh. Everybody has fun. Don't resent the embarrassing moments. Embrace them. See those moments as a gift from God, a gift where God's reminding you you're human, you have limitations, you can't do it all. And you know what? That's okay. Here's the second way to win this battle with pride. Stay close to Jesus. I think the best example of this is Luke chapter 5. You remember what happened there? Jesus wants to take Peter fishing. Now, Jesus is a carpenter by trade, not a fisherman. And Peter knows that. And Peter's the pro. He spent his whole life in the Sea of Galilee. He knows everything there is to know about fishing on this lake. So what could Jesus possibly teach him? And then this is kind of confirmed in Peter's mind because when Jesus wants to take him fishing, it's during the daytime. And anybody who's ever fished in the Sea of Galilee knows you don't fish during the day. If you want to catch fish in this lake, you've got to do it at night. In fact, just, just the night before, Peter and all his friends were out all night long and they hadn't caught a thing. Hey, the fish are not biting. Lord, it's not a good idea. This is not going to work. But because it's Jesus, and Peter really loves Jesus. Because it's Jesus, man, I don't think this is work. This is not going to be fun. It's not going to be good. But because it's Jesus. In fact, the words Peter uses is, because you say so, Lord. And he comes along. You remember the miracle? They get out, they get out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and Peter has the catch of a lifetime. I mean, so many fish they have to bring in other boats just to handle the load. And even with all the other boats, with all the weight, all the fish, some of the boats are starting to sink. I mean, it was just amazing. But the strangest thing of all is the reaction of Peter to this miracle. You remember? He drops to his knees and he says, Depart from me, Lord. Depart. Go away. I am a sinful man. Why does he react like that? I mean, it's not that Peter hasn't seen Jesus perform miracles before. He was there at the wedding. We saw him turn water into wine, and he's seen Jesus cast out demons. And at this point in his life, he's already seen Jesus heal the son of a soldier and heal his own mother-in-law. He's seen Jesus perform all kinds of miracles. What's different about this situation? Because here is Jesus displaying his wisdom and his power in Peter's world. Right there in his own fishing boat. The very place where he works and earns a living. The place where Peter considers himself to be the expert. Hey, Lord, I can use your help over here and here and here, but hey, I got it here. I know what I'm doing here. I don't need you here. But even there, I was out all night long and didn't catch a thing. And then Jesus gets in the boat and look what happens. And he drops to his knees and thinks, who am I to be in the presence of such greatness? Who am I to be in the presence of such grace? And you remember how Jesus responds to Peter? He says, Peter, don't be afraid. Hey, Peter, don't pull away from me. Yeah, I know what happened here today. It's been overwhelming, but you haven't seen anything yet. What I want to be able to do for you in your future because from this moment on, instead of just catching fish, I want you to do something much more significant. I want to use you to help bring other people into the kingdom. And the Bible tells us Peter and his friends immediately bring the boats to shore, and they left everything behind. Nets, the fish, I mean, this was the catch of a lifetime. They left it all behind so they could follow Jesus.
Now here's the lesson. When we really become aware of our sin, oh God, what have I done? Look at the mess that I've made. When we really become aware of our sin, we feel this sense of shame. And just like Peter, we want to pull away from God. Oh Lord, you don't want to have anything to do with somebody like me. I've been so foolish. And yet it's Peter who shows us the best place for a sinner to be is right where he was, as close as you can get to Jesus, kneeling in reverence before him. Because when Peter did that, guess what? He found a new life, and we will too. The best way to win the battle with pride, stay close to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I'm just overwhelmed by your love and compassion. Just the many ways you just keep reaching out to us even when we don't recognize our need for you. God, forgive us for our sin, our pride especially. The many times, the many ways we just shut you out of our lives. We ignore you, we forget you, forsake you, we take you for granted. And yet, God, you just continue to be patient and kind. God, we're overwhelmed by that grace. Show it to us again today. God, do for us what you did for Peter in that fishing boat. Let us experience your goodness here today in a very special way. God, please draw near to us as we seek to draw near to you. And I pray for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.